Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. You've probably thought about this question before. My guess is uh, if you're over the age of three, perhaps. Um, If you could have any superpower, what would it be? You've probably been asked that before. You probably have an answer. You've probably thought through it. I've thought a lot about this. Um, In fact, uh, in March of 2022, a research group did a survey of 3,200 Americans to find out what, by state actually, what the uh, most common answer to this question was. And so uh, here were the results. The the, the top two superpowers, uh, the first was teleportation. And the second, interestingly, I didn't expect this one, the second uh, most desired superpower was the ability to heal yourself or somebody else. So teleportation, the ability to heal, heal yourself or somebody else. Now, that wasn't perhaps the most surprising part. The most surprising part was when asked what people would give up to be able to have a superpower, 29% said they would give up their pet. So like you get rid of your dog, okay? 85% said they would give up alcohol. 42% said they would give up the internet, which I don't know if people understand exactly how dependent we are on the internet, but 42% uh, 42 said they'd give up the internet. Uh, 15% said they would give up their significant other. (laughs) And this is for, uh, I don't know which one's worse, perhaps. Maybe this will surprise you, maybe it won't. 23% of men said they would give up their firstborn child. (laughs) Now, yeah, I'm seeing some eyebrows go up like, oh my gosh, you know, your firstborn is probably great. You know, some of you'd be like, wow, that'd be awesome. Uh, So, (laughs) but teleportation and healing, those are pretty good. Uh, For the longest time, my answer has been, I'd wanna uh, be able to be invisible. Right, And obviously that leads you into a conversation about, well, what are the stipulations on the invisibility? I, th- I think most superpowers need to have a vulnerability built, built like into them, right? Uh, because otherwise you kind of become God, you know? Um, but either way, uh, my, my answer kind of has always been um, to become invisible. Now, I'm not sure uh, if that's, you know, because you know, of, of some like low level social anxiety or uh, I'm actually pretty naturally introverted. And so this is a kind of hilarious job for me to have. But um, well, that's kind of been my answer for the longest time. Now, my guess is, you know, for whatever your superpower that you would want to have is, my guess is though, is that at various points, most of us have probably actually already experienced and it probably hasn't felt like a superpower in the moment, but we've probably all experienced in some way what it feels like to, for all intents and purposes, be invisible. Now, my son Judah, I don't know if you know this, he is a world-renowned Jedi master of hide-and-go-seek. He just is. It's incredible. We, um, we often play hide-and-go-seek. Our house is not that big. There's actually not a, play, not a lot of places to hide. And there, it has happened on multiple occasions that I have looked in the exact spot that he's hiding and still have not seen him. I don't know how that happens. Uh, I think he stole like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak or something where it's like, dude, how in the world? I, I must've looked right at you, but I didn't see you. Or maybe for you, you feel invisible when you're trying to get your kid's attention when they're playing video games. 
It's like, you might as well not even be there, right? You just try, you're just constantly saying their name. My son's also good at that as well. He's good at a lot of these, actually. Um, <laughs> maybe for you, the time where you felt invisible was when that car pulled out in front of you, right? And it was as if they didn't see you. Maybe it happened to you on the way here. And maybe you didn't get in an accident, maybe you did, but you, in that moment, perhaps felt a bit invisible. Maybe for you, it's a friend or a spouse that it seems as though no matter what, what's on their phone is always more interesting than what you're saying to them. And so you feel invisible. Maybe for you, it's kind of every time you walk out of the house or you go to class and it feels as though, even, even, though, you're, even though you are like physically there, right? If, like people would run into you. But maybe for you, it seems like most times you walk out of the house, you're there, but it's, you might as well not be. Seems like nobody notices you. You don't quite know where you belong. You feel a bit like a loner. Or maybe you're around people a lot, but the reality is, is that you have this sense that nobody actually knows you. Now, the question our passage is going to answer this morning is how does Jesus see the unseen? How does Jesus see those who feel invisible? Now, this text feels a little familiar to you. It, it maybe should, because literally six weeks ago, Nathan Compton, one of our elders, uh, gave a message on this exact text, and I was sitting right over there, and as Nathan was preaching, there were just a few things that jumped out of this passage that I just... Uh, I couldn't help but want to like show them to you, even though he's already preached this. There were things that I hadn't seen before as he was preaching that I was like, man, I can't help but show you this. And because I, you know, kind of control the teaching schedule, I can do that. So, uh, so we're gonna look at Mark 6 here. And I just wanna show you a couple of those things that honestly uh, gripped my heart as we went through that passage. And today as we walk through our Encounters with Jesus series. Now, the first thing that hit me in a fresh way was Jesus's response to the crowds. If you look at Mark 6, 34, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. On multiple occasions, uh, I have done an exercise with people, and we could even do it right now in a sense where um, I basically, uh, I tell people, hey, either take out a piece of paper, have a pen, or even just in your mind, visualize. So if you imagine, imagine the face that God makes towards you when he looks at you, right? If you had to, if you had to think of maybe an emoji or just a, a very simple drawing, what face, when God looks at you, what, what's the face that he's making? Now, perhaps a, my guess is a face popped in your mind, a facial expression popped in your mind. And I'll just say that every time I've done this exercise, for all of the times that I've done this, there has only been one person who has ever thought of or drawn a smiley face. Nine times out of 10, the face that people envision the facial expression that people envision God having towards them is that um, 
is anything, you know, sometimes it's like frowny or angry or whatever. It's generally, honestly, that, that meh face, you know? The one that's like kind of indifferent, unimpressed, you know, sort of dissess, like looks minorly annoyed, kind of that like, like good, not great, but I guess, I guess you'll have to do kind of face. Nine times out of 10, that's the face that people think of when they think of how God sees you. But here's Jesus. He's trying to go on a little vacation. Nathan walked us through that. And he's trying to go get away with his disciples after they've gone on a short-term missions trip that has probably exhausted them. He's trying to just take them on a little reprieve. But now there's a huge crowd waiting for them on the shore. And, and what, when you and I, when, when, you know, imagine we're in this scenario. We, we come up to the shore. We see this large crowd. We're honest. We're trying to go on vacation here. And if, if it's me, I'm probably thinking, did you not get my out-of-office you know, email response here. Like, what are you doing here? Do you not know? Like, can't a guy get a break, right? But here's Jesus. He's not annoyed. He's not indifferent. He's not frustrated. He's not put out. But, he's, but, but it says he saw them and he had compassion on them. And why did Jesus have compassion on this crowd of people? Well, it tells us right here, it's because, he's, it's because he saw something that no one else could see. He saw something that even his disciples couldn't see. And what he saw when he looked at the crowds is he was filled with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that that word compassion literally means to feel to the core of your innermost being affection and pity. It's kind of like if uh, if you've ever been in a store and you've come across a child who has lost their parent. Now my guess is, no matter how busy you are, no matter how rushed you are, no matter how many other things you have to do, when you see that child who's lost in a store and they're scared and they're crying and they, they don't know where their parent is, my guess is, is that you don't get annoyed, you don't get frustrated, you don't get angry because you know what it's like to be vulnerable. You know what it's like to be lost. You know what it's like to be scared. It's as if as you look at that child, you, you can feel everything they're feeling. And you have deep compassion for them. You see, God does not look at you for whatever facial expression you thought of when you thought of God looking at you. God does not look at you like an unimpressed coach. But God sees you. He sees you in your situation. He knows how you're feeling. He, he is not unconcerned with where you are at. Now, Jesus saw the crowd and had compassion because he knew that they were searching for a shepherd. They were searching for a shepherd. Now, the reality is, is that all of us in here are looking for a shepherd. Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's a state of mind, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a set of circumstances in our life. We are all looking for something or someone to lead us into green pastures, to lead us to quiet waters, to lead us to peace. We are all looking for someone to care for us. And Jesus sees the crowd and he sees that they are looking for someone to care for them, but it, of, to care for them only in a way that God can care for them. He's looking, they're looking for someone to lead them in ways that only God can lead them. He's looking, they're looking for someone to provide for them 
in only ways that God can provide for them. And then Jesus begins, begins to teach them until the sermon goes a little too long, right? You've probably felt that. I, felt, I have felt that while I've been preaching. Like, this is enough, okay? I've heard my voice too much. Uh, I'll just have Dalton close the service because I don't want to hear myself talk anymore, right? Like, we've all been, and my guess is second service people will really feel this, right? Because it's almost lunchtime, you know? And so the disciples recognize uh, a reality that, that we've perhaps also felt where it's like, this sermon's going a little long, and my guess is, is that they're a little hungry. Because in verse 36, it says this, when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted, and it is already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. In essence, what the disciples are doing here is they're looking at the crowd, this crowd that is like sheep without a shepherd, and he wants Jesus to tell them, these sheep without a shepherd, he wants Jesus to look at them and say, figure it out. Figure it out. You have this need, you have this hunger. I don't know where, I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know when, I don't know how much it's gonna cost, but you need to figure it out for yourself. You see, when you don't have a shepherd, that's that's the answer that we'll often give ourselves. That's the answer that we'll often give other people. That's the answer actually that our society will tell us is that when, when you have a problem, when you have a need, when you have a deep hunger that nothing, nothing has yet satisfied, you need to figure it out. Figure it out. You wanna feel that hunger to be desired? You want to be wanted? Figure it out. Wear these clothes, try these products, do this workout routine, try this diet, pursue that relationship. And when you get that relationship, hold on to it for dear life. Because if you lose it, your world will fall apart. Figure it out. Do you want to feel that hunger to be successful? You have this hunger to, to, to feel as though you're worth something, that you have meaning, that you're successful in life? Well, go to this school, get, get educated, make sure that you get that job and, and pursue these promotions and get that partnership. Figure it out. You want to feel that hunger to be happy? Try this substance. Try this routine. Try this program. Figure it out yourself. You see, sheep without a shepherd have to become their own shepherds. The problem with a sheep becoming their own shepherds, with uh, the problem with with you as a person becoming your own shepherd, the problem is is that that is as effective as a drowning person as becoming becoming their own lifeguard. But do you remember what Jesus did? Do you see what Jesus did? Instead of doing what his disciples wanted him to do, to look at the crowd and say, hey, you have this, you have this deep need, figure it out. What does Jesus do? He tells them to sit down. He doesn't tell them to go away. He tells them to stay here. He sits them down, takes the bread and fish that they had in verse 41. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. And he kept breaking, and he kept breaking, and he kept breaking, and they kept distributing, they kept distributing, they kept distributing, until verse 42, everyone ate and was satisfied. 
Now, it's really easy to think that this, this perhaps isn't uh, an unfamiliar passage to you. You've probably, you know, maybe heard this story before, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's very easy to read this passage and to think, well, that, that's, that's interesting. That's, um, if it happened, I guess, that's impressive, right? Nice little story where Jesus does this nice little miracle that shows just how caring he is, right? These people were hungry, he gave them food. And we can totally miss that the feeding of the 5,000 was just a dress rehearsal. The feeding of the 5,000 was just a practice run. Because it wouldn't be long before Jesus would break his very body to feed that deep hunger of the soul for everyone who would believe. You see, because eight chapters later, Jesus again would sit down with his disciples and Jesus again would bless the bread and Jesus again would break it and distribute it. And in Mark chapter 14, he would distribute the body, he would, he would distribute the bread and say, take, take it, this is my body. You see, when Jesus fed the 5,000 that day, he was doing something. He wasn't just, he wasn't just feeding people bread, even though he was, he, he kind of became like a, a chef for a day, right? He wasn't, but he wasn't just doing that. You see, what Jesus was doing was, was, he was he was beginning something that would portray what he was about to do with his very body. And so you may feel like nobody sees you. You may feel like nobody knows you. You may feel like nobody cares. You may feel like God himself doesn't even care. Perhaps that's why you don't even believe in God. Because not only do you look around at the world and you see all the terrible things that are happening, but you, actually, you have actually felt and experienced within your own life all the terrible things that are happening. And you go, if there is, there's no way there's a God, because if there is a God, how in the world could this have happened to me or be happening to me? You perhaps think that God doesn't, see you. And so what do you do when it seems like God doesn't see you? What do you do when it seems like God doesn't care? You look to the bread. And not the bread of water and yeast and flour, but the bread of Christ's broken body that was broken for you so that you might be filled. You say, well, that, that seems like a bit of a stretch. Well, Jesus himself in John chapter six, he says this. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And you see, just as there was enough bread to go around for the thousands who gathered on that hill that day, there is enough salvation in Jesus Christ to go around, even for you. Even for you. If you would simply receive the gift of his finished work by faith. You see, there, there's nothing in this passage in Mark chapter six that indicates that the disciples uh, charged money for the bread. It's not like they put out a tip jar, right? 
And there's nothing to indicate that they, that they shoved the bread down, down people's throats, right? It's not like they force-fed the bread on people. No, Jesus broke the bread and simply offered it to them. You see, it isn't proximity to bread even that satisfies your hunger. See, there, there, are, there are plenty of people who treat Jesus kind of like an aroma diet, it's like, well, if I just get around it, if I just get a little bit of a smell, then it'll do, then, you know, then it'll do what it needs to do. But you know, if, if you live your whole life on an aroma diet, you will die. Because you're smelling it, but you're not actually receiving it. You can't just be around food and be satisfied, but it's only when you receive it for yourself. It becomes part of you that your deep hunger is satisfied. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are united with him in a deeper way than your food is united with your body when it becomes part of you. That's called union with Christ. And when you receive Christ, it's only then that that deep hunger of the soul will be actually satisfied. That deep hunger that you are trying to fill with a million other things. I'm not even creative enough to think of all the ways that we are all trying to fill this deep hunger of the soul in our life. But when you receive Jesus Christ by faith, and you are united with him by faith, you will eat and be satisfied. Does God see you? Look no further than Christ broken for you and offered to you. And this is why we practice the Lord's Supper. This is why for centuries the church has practiced the Lord's Supper. Now, it's at this point um, that, so there, there are several different views on the Lord's Supper, and I don't know that we've actually walked through the variety of views that exist as it relates to what the Lord's Supper is and what is actually happening when we take the Lord's Supper together. So what I, what I want to do uh, as quickly as I can lest you may think the sermon's already gone too long, all right? But I'm really gonna push my luck here. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna just lay out for you uh, four views that have been traditionally, traditionally held as it relates to the Lord's Supper. And then I want to explain to you what our view is here at Candeo. And then I wanna give some instruction on how we're going to receive the Lord's Supper moving forward as a church. Not just today, but just kind of moving forward, all right? So... Real quickly, four prominent views as relates to the Lord's Supper. Now, if you, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, uh, this first view is perhaps somewhat familiar. Maybe it wasn't ex explicitly taught, but uh, this would be familiar to you. It was, it was hilarious trying to hear my daughter say these words yesterday too. So, the, yeah, it's okay. Um, so the first view is, is historically referred to as transubstantiation. Now, you don't need to remember that, but this is the, this is the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, uh, where, and the, the uh, Roman Catholics uh, also refer to this as the Eucharist, right? You may have heard of that. And so um, basically what the Roman Catholic view does is it takes uh, some philosophy from Aristotle on the substance and the accidents. I'm not gonna get into Aristotelian philosophy here. You will throw me off stage. So, um, but 
Basically what this view says in a nutshell is that in the, the, the elements within the Eucharist, the bread and, and the wine, uh, turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the summary in a nutshell. Now at Candeo, we don't hold to this view uh, for a few reasons. One of those is the lack of robust uh, biblical and rational support for this view. The second is for the, the threat of actually worshiping the elements themselves. If they actually do transform into the body and blood of Christ, then why would we not worship the elements themselves? Because that's actually Jesus. But I would say probably the third, uh, at least in my view, one of the more convincing reasons to not hold this view is because in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 26, Paul says that the Lord's Supper will be practiced until the Lord returns. And so if the Lord is truly physically present in the elements, then the church should have only ever celebrated the Lord's Supper once because the Lord would have returned in the elements. So that's the Roman Catholic view, transubstantiation. Fast forward in history uh, to what is now the the Lutheran view. So maybe you come from a Lutheran background. Uh, It's not transubstantiation, it's consubstantiation. Uh, Con simply means with. So this was the, um, the reformer Martin Luther's view. This was his view and therefore the Lutheran view of communion. Uh, Luther rejected the Roman Catholic uh, view that the elements turn, in, turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. But instead, he, uh, he affirmed that, that Christ is present in, in the elements, with the elements, under the elements. That's the con of consubstantiation, with, in, under without becoming the actual body and blood of Christ. Think of it this way. Uh, you, have, you have a sponge and that sponge soaks up water. Now the water is with the sponge, but the water is not the sponge. The sponge is not the water. That's kind of what's in view here in the Lutheran view of the elements. That Christ is with the elements, he's in the elements, but he did not become the elements, unlike the Roman Catholic view, if that makes sense. Real quick, again, I'm pushing my luck here. The third view is the real presence view. This is, this is uh, uh, John Calvin, if you're familiar with him. This was his view. Uh, quite simply said, uh, it rejects that, that anything mystical is happening with the elements themselves, but instead emphasizes Christ's unique presence when the church takes the Lord's Supper. So Christ is uniquely present as we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's, the, that's the real presence view. Then you have the memorial view, um, which simply says the elements are symbols and all this is doing is, is uh, symbolizing the body and blood of Christ. They don't become anything and there's not even necessarily a unique presence of Christ with the church as you take the elements together. So those are the four views as quickly as I possibly could. Now, where do we land here at Candale? I think the most accurate way to describe kind of how we view the Lord's Supper here at Candeo is, is perhaps actually, um, and I hate being this guy because it, it, it feels too cute. It's, it's kind of this like fifth way, right? Where it's like, it's kind of like in between the real presence and the memorial. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. So the bread and the cup are clearly being used as symbolic in scripture in the New Testament. So this, that rules out the first two views for us. And it's also clear from Matthew 18, that Christ promises to be present with his church when they gather. And I would say in in a unique way, 
Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with you. And I, I realize that the context of that is church discipline, but it is within the context of the gathered church. And so we also know that Christ is uniquely present with us as we gather. Like right now, as a congregation, we are gathered in Christ's name, and therefore we can be sure that Christ is actually uniquely present with us as a body as we gather. And it's also clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner has implications and consequences that the Apostle Paul is warning believers about. And so this means that... that um, that communion, that as we take communion, it's not, it's not just an arbitrary action, but actually has real consequences that we should consider. We should actually stop and think through the seriousness of what we are doing together because there are consequences for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so what we can say for sure is that when we gather as a church, Jesus Christ is uniquely present with us because he said he would be and that the Lord's Supper is an important practice of the church because of what the elements symbolize as we receive them together as a gathered church. Do you see how, how this real presence and memorial view kind of overlap, right? And so what, what we would generally say is not that Christ is necessarily uniquely present in the elements, but that as we gather, Christ is uniquely present and as we receive communion, something is happening in that unique presence that could not happen if we were doing this on our own. Now, why in the world would I spend so much time in a message? That feels more like an equipping class than a sermon. I understand that. Now, why would I do that though? For a couple reasons. I think there are a couple things that might be true about us uh, here at Candeo. First, I think it's possible that for some of us, communion has become a kind of like mechanical church practice that we give very little thought to. Like it's just something that we do. It's just something that, you know, the, the elements are on the tables as we walk in. They, are, they weren't today, obviously. Um, and you'll see why in a second. But uh, we just grab them sit down, try to not step on them while we're, you know, singing our songs. And maybe, we, maybe your kids do, they probably have. That's fine, I guess. But, um, and then you, you just wait till the end of service and we kind of go through it. And, and, and the thing that we're so focused on is, man, this juice is terrible and this bread is not even bread, right? Like, I get it, I'm with you, okay? But it's very, I, I think for some of us, this has become kind of like a mechanical, rote church practice when the reality is, is that, is that communion, the Lord's Supper, is a gift that Christ gave the church to remind us over and over and over again of the sweetness of the union that we have with Christ and the sweetness of the union that we have with one another, right? Whereas what we have in baptism, that, that, that is a one-time portrayal of our new life in Christ. What we have in the Lord's Supper is, is an over and over reminder, of what Christ has done for us, not just as individuals, but as a body. It's a gift. But if we aren't careful, we'll just do it because we've always done it. It's, it's probably like, um, uh, my guess is some of you, maybe as you're praying before meals, you'll, you know, you'll ask God to bless this food. And if I said, what do you mean by that? You might go, I don't know, All right? It's like, well, Jesus blessed, blessed the food. 
And so I guess blessing food is a good thing. So I'm gonna bless, like tonight, you're gonna bless the nachos and little smokies, the Super Bowl. And basically what, you, basically what you're asking Jesus to do is to, you're asking him to, to transform these things into vegetables, right? You're asking, you are asking for a miracle to happen, you know, maybe, right? But honestly, it's like, it's like, what do we mean by Jesus bless this food? We probably, we probably have no idea. When really, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pray that. I actually do think there's a, a good, you should just know why you're praying it, right? Uh, one, one of the, uh, I often, man, this wasn't in the message, but we're here now. So um, I'm not saying you have to pray this way. I'm just saying like what, what we do in our house is I, I don't say bless this food because no, no one knows what it means. Um, what I do say is, Lord, would you, would you use this food to give us energy to glorify you as we walk in obedience and serve other people? Now, that's much longer than saying bless this food. But I, I do think that, that like, that's, that's what we actually should mean, right? Which then should inform probably the food we eat, but that's another uh, conversation. Little Smokies are great, though, I will say. So... So maybe that's you. Maybe as you approach the Lord's Supper, you just haven't really thought about it, right? Maybe, my guess though, is for some of you, probably some of you who particularly come from Roman Catholic backgrounds or Lutheran backgrounds, my guess is there's another ditch that we can fall into where we can look at maybe these like first two views of the Lord's Supper and maybe from our experience with it, it was just kind of weird and we just didn't quite understand it. And it was kind of, it, it had this, this kind of like, like mysticism to it. And we were so confused or weirded out by the mysticism that is in all of what was going on that what we can do then is we can run the totally opposite direction and end up reducing the Lord's Supper to a purely physical ritual that's totally stripped of its spiritual significance, right? Because we didn't quite understand what was happening when we experienced it grown up or whatever. And so we just go, well, I, that's weird. I don't want to be weird. So let's just, you know, kind of go over here. And this is just kind of a physical thing we do when there is genuine spiritual significant significance to it. So why, why would we spend so much time in a message talking about it? It's because I think that we as a church are probably due for a reset in the way that we view and approach the Lord's Supper, which is why the way we're going to celebrate it together moving forward is going to look slightly different, right? And so here's what I mean by that. You might have noticed as you walked in that there are tables around the room uh, with the elements actually on them. And so the way we're going to practice communion moving forward is that instead of grabbing, you know, the prepackaged things as you walk in and just kind of like holding on to them until the end, um, we're going to set aside time in our services where uh, we can actually get up out of our seats, come and get the elements and take them back to our seats uh, so that we can be led in receiving them together. Okay. And the reason we're going to do it this way is actually, uh, it's for a couple reasons. First, um, Part of the reason for this is so that is so that those who shouldn't participate in communion can actually so that, so that you can actually consider whether whether you should actually participate in this. And I would say the first category of people would be um, if you're an unbeliever, communion isn't for you because of what it is representing. You have not yet received, and that's that's fine. We're so glad you're here. We would just ask that you not participate in this part because of what it because it's not symbolizing something that is, that is yet true of you, right? I'd say another category of people who shouldn't participate is for those 
who are, who are Christians who have ongoing disunity with a fellow believer and, are, and, and you are unwilling to resolve that as soon as possible, right? And so I would say, like, if you have brokenness right now with another believer and it's like, I can't resolve that right now, but I'm going to, then I, if, if that's your posture towards that, I'd say, take communion because you are wanting to have unity within the body. Now, if you have brokenness with another believer and you're just totally unwilling to even, to even try to reconcile that, I think what we see from 1 Corinthians 11 is, is that that would be taking communion in an, in an unworthy manner. And so if you're unwilling to resolve conflict with another believer, I would say you also should abstain from the elements. Now, another reason for this shift uh, is because you'll probably notice we're, we're, uh, we're not there yet. We are trying to make a shift in terms of the quality of the bread. Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. So uh, here, here's, here's what has happened. COVID hits, we go to prepackaged elements, which are good for a time, but make no sense right now, okay? Uh, there, are, there are logistical things at play, things like that. Quite simply though, uh, we recognize that specifically the bread in those little packages is terrible. And here's the thing, Jesus used bread and wine, which were common elements in that day. I think it's because the accessibility was just so high. He wanted, he wanted us to remember this, and so he used highly accessible elements. Well, the reality is they, they recognized the bread that they were eating. The bread in those little packages is unrecognizable as bread, right? And so part of the reason we're, we're, we're doing this as well is because uh, we started to get uncomfortable with the way that the bread in those packages was, I think, inadvertently communicating a diminishing of value and was just not recognizable as bread in our day, okay? And so uh, we're working on it, but um, so in just, in just a minute, uh, we'll all get up, You'll go to the stations around. There are prepackaged juices, but there are little pieces of bread. So you'll wanna take both of those back to your seat and then I'll lead us in a time where we receive those together. Uh, as we are moving, the band is going to uh, lead a song. And so we can even be singing while we get the elements together and are moving around. And so there is gonna be quite a bit of movement. We recognize uh, that this is, this is a less convenient way to do this. We know that. And that's actually by design because we actually should be aware of one another as we receive communion. And so the fact that we are in each other's way, uh, we're actually okay with that. And so um, there's three tables up here at the front. So I'd say, you know, perhaps kind of if you're on the floor, kind of, you know, three quarters of the way-ish towards the front, you might want to use these tables. There's two tables uh, back here by the exit doors. Uh, maybe if you're kind of further back on the floor or maybe even in the, in the balcony. Uh, balcony? That's not a balcony. I don't know what to call those seats. Stadium seating, maybe. If you're kind of closer to the, towards the floor, maybe hit those tables. And then up in the balcony. It's not a balcony, Jake. Uh, <laughs> behind the... <laughs> I don't know what to call you guys. So... Um, but up there, there's two tables uh, kind of behind the, the, the TVs. Uh, there's two tables up there as well. So if you're kind of up in the stadium seating section, you can hit those. But we're going we're gonna to have several minutes. You'll have plenty of time.
get the elements, come and grab them, take them back to your seat. The band will lead us in a song and I will come up uh, once everyone's gotten the elements and lead us in communion together. There are also gluten-free prepackaged ones at every station. So for if you need gluten-free, you can go to any of the tables and there's, uh, there's some of that there for you as well. So is that clear? Perfect. All right. So if you are participating in communion with us this morning, uh, feel free to get up, go to the tables, grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll lead us in a time here in a few minutes. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.